But we're in Acts chapter 27. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Um, thanks for coming to church today. You never know on a holiday weekend, like how many people are going to be here. Uh, and I know it's uh, Memorial Day weekend. We, we remember, uh, especially I think those who've who've died, given their lives for our country, but I also want to thank uh, any of you that have served our, our country as well. I'm, I'm thankful that, that we, uh, we get to live here. Uh, so Acts 27, um, this is uh, 44 verses in this chapter. Um, it's, it's a narrative. We're going to hear a lot of sailing terms. Any sailors out there? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, you're a sailor. Now you're not. You're a liar is what you are. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, anyway, that's good. You won't be able to call me out when I mess up these sailing terms. Um, so lots of sailing jargon in this passage, um, lots of geography, and, and maybe you're going, oh, man. But this is, uh, this is a really incredible story. And as we're listening to Acts 27, I want you to, to put your, your Bible student hat on and, and ask, okay, Luke, why did you put this here, right? Luke did this on purpose. We get these 44 verses towards the, we're almost right at the end of Acts. So Luke, what's the purpose here? Because he has a reason. He has something that, that he wants us to know, that he, he, he's trying to shape us as Christ followers. Um, I'm going to throw up a map up here. This is the only time I'm going to show it in the service, it's, it's, or during the sermon. So it's, it's just to kind of generally help you understand uh, where we're going there. For those of you that like maps, I don't like maps, so I won't remember to bring it up again. But let's jump in. Verse 1. And when it was decided that we should, set, uh, that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Eremtium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, uh, um, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And, and throughout, throughout the passage, I'm going to kind of stop and interject some things and, and hopefully with some of the sailing terms, help us understand a little bit of what's going on here. But, um, but Paul is, is treated kindly by uh, this, uh, this centurion named, named Julius. I'm sure part of it is that Paul is a Roman citizen. I'm sure part of it is just how Paul carries himself, that, that he, uh, just his kindness. Uh, but certainly this is God's blessing on Paul, that he would find favor with this Julius who's in charge uh, of Paul and the other prisoners. And he allowed Paul to bring with him Luke, the author of this book, um, as well as Aristarchus, uh, who is a brother from the church in Thessalonica. And, and they get to Sidon, and um, the, the ship needs to be prepared to go, so this is going to take some time to load and unload whatever they need to, uh, to get on and off the ship. So, so he lets Paul go um, to his friends and to be cared for. Verse 4. And putting out to sea from where, uh, from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. The lee of Cyprus, right? We all know what that is. Um, so the lee, and I just had to Google this, the, the lee means shelter, right? So if I'm Cyprus and the wind is blowing this way, the lee of Cyprus is right here, right? They, they want to avoid the wind as much as possible. It makes the sailing more difficult. So verse 5. 
And when uh, we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia uh, and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, right? It's, it's, it is hard sailing that they're already encountering. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee, again, under the, the, the protection uh, from the wind, the shelter of Crete and Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was near the city of Lycia. Uh, so the typical ship um, for a, a journey like this would have been about 140 feet long, uh, 36 feet wide. It would have been, um, this ship is a, a very sturdy ship, um, but at high sea, it certainly had its disadvantages, which, which we'll run into here. Um, it wouldn't have had... Um, when we think of a rudder on like a modern ship, it, it, it would not have been like that. It's, it's rudder instead would have been these, these two, uh, just think of like huge paddles um, extending from the, the rear of the ship to steer it. Um, so they have difficulty sailing already, and they've really just begun. And they arrive in this place called Fair Havens, which was on the map there. And I, I don't know anything about Fair Havens, except it's a nice name. It sounds like a nice place to be, right? There, there are names um, that, that are just ominous. Like, I don't know why in the world you'd ever name something that. Like, in Oregon, I can't remember where it is, but I've traveled over it before. It's called Dead Man's Pass. That's a terrible name when you have to travel somewhere. So here's, here's Paul, and they're in a place called Fairhavens, and it's been hard. This sounds like a good place to stay, but that's not what's going to happen. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And Paul, by this point, is quite an experienced traveler. Um, he sailed many, many times over his missionary journey. So he warns Julius that they really should stay in Fairhaven because it's, it's after the, the Passover. So this, this means it's at least mid-October. Um, and that time of the year, it was well known that this would make for a, an incredibly dangerous voyage. Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. And listen to this, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, right? That does not instill you with confidence. A harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there, right? They didn't listen to Paul. Julius listens and said to the, the pilot and the owner of the ship, and it sounds like the, the harbor, for whatever reason, wouldn't be a great harbor to winter in. So they, they want to try. They're hoping that maybe they can make it to Phoenix, roughly 40 miles away. And apparently, apparently every Phoenix is good to winter in, I guess. Verse 13. 
Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. Weighed anchor. What is that? So the anchor, they're, they're dropping it, but they're not dropping it all the way so that it, it hits the floor. They're, they're dropping it so that it creates drag, right? They're trying to slow themselves down. It's their, it's their way to try and gain some control because they don't want to sail too fast. Um, but in reality, the, the seas, the winds are the ones that are calling the shots, right? And you know what that's like in life. We all like to think that we have control, but there are times when we realize truly how little control we have in life. And and wouldn't it be great if we could just weigh anchor, right? Drop down and, and get a little bit of drag to slow things down in life so that we could at least feel like we have a semblance of control. But for the ship, it gets it gets worse. The winds take over. Verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along. Right? They were fighting the wind and the wind won. It was too much for them. So they just, they gave in to the wind. They had no choice. Now, like I said, I know nothing uh, about sailing, but I, I do know about fighting water on a river um, while, while whitewater rafting. Um, this is going to be the first summer in a long time that I won't be at our high school camp. I'm so sad. ETVs are our camp for high schoolers. Uh, I think it's like eight churches come together and they just make this camp in this little podunk town uh, called... Um, Thai Valley, thank you. Uh, Thai Valley, Oregon. They take over the campgrounds and and each day the students go off and and do like this different activity. And so for years I've gotten to help uh, guide guide rafts down the Deschutes River. It's this 12 mile stretch that I just absolutely love. I love to fish it. I love to raft it. It is, it is one of my favorites. I, I, I tried to calculate this last summer, like, okay, how many times do I think I've, I've guided rafts down this trip? And I think I've gone over 50 times now. I'm not positive, but, but I'm really close to that. So I'm not an amazing guide, but I know that 12 mile stretch of the river. Um, uh, so there's a, there's a rapid that we do, and, it, and it's, it's, the big, it's the big rapid of that section. It's called Oak Springs, and it's, um, it's, a, it's a pretty good drop. It's, it's scary when you're looking down over it and you're about to get in. Like, it's a scary drop. And then right after, there's all these rocks that you've got to navigate through. So uh, a year or two ago, I don't, I don't remember exactly, but I had a paddler in particular on my raft that was really nervous. He'd, he'd heard about Oak Springs, and, and on Oak Springs, there's the right side, which is that, that side I described that's a ton of fun. It is kind of scary. And then the left side. And the left side's okay. It's got, it's got a wave. It's like a, it's like a nice pillow. Um, and when you go over it, it is still fun. But it's nothing like the right side, right? Like everyone wants to run the right. I had this, this camper that did not want to run the right side. And then as we're getting closer, I'm talking to other guys, I found out there's a bunch of, of students that don't want to ride the right side. So somehow I get nominated to take all the people that want to go on the left side, right? The other guys are like, Greg, you've done this 50 times. Like, you've done this enough. You can go left. I'm like, okay, fine. So I get all of these paddlers that are really scared to go right side. I'm like, okay, we're going to go left. The problem is they're so scared. They're not paddling well, right? Like, like I, I need to get them in the place that I want them even to hit this gentle pillow of a wave, right? So I've got six paddlers. One of them 
is paddling with me. The rest are like just crazy going. And, and, and her and I, we're going, we're trying to make it work and it's not working. I just finally said, just don't worry about it. Just stop. And we just let the river take us. And, and at one point it looks like I'm going to go down this thing backwards, which would have been more fun. Um, but, uh, but then we kind of ended up going sideways. So Paul and the rest of the ship though, right? They, they're, they're battling the wind, they're battling the current. And they realize we have no chance. They, they just, they just, they just let the river, or not the river, the, the waters take over, and that's life, right? There are times when no matter what choices you make, you're not improving your lot, right? You can paddle, paddle, paddle. You can have excellent technique. You can paddle with all your might and, and work in unison with all the people with you, and you really don't have a chance at, at changing much of anything. I think back to Matthew 14, Jesus, he's, he'd been teaching, and, and he's, he's sending the crowds away, and he tells his disciples, hey, go get in the boat and go across the lake, right? Go, go, go across the other, the other side. And as they're going, they get like midway out, and it gets rough. I mean, the waves get crazy. The wind gets rough. And, and these are guys that, that knew, knew how to be on the water, right? This was not their first time, but even for them, this was scary. And the interesting thing is that they, they obeyed Jesus, right? They did what he said to do, and still it was hard, and it was scary. And yes, Jesus comes out, he saves them. But man, it's like that with us following Jesus, right? Jesus says, follow me, but he doesn't say it'll be easy, right? That's a Western add-on to Christianity. That's an American addition to Christianity, thinking that this life is going to be easy if I just follow Jesus. No, he tells us, he tells us life is gonna be hard. He tells us that we'll be persecuted when we follow Jesus. And even with these warnings, I so often find myself surprised when life is hard, when life is painful. If, if someone was recommending a hike to me, right, someplace I'd never been before, they say, yeah, go to, go to this trail. I say, well, how do I know it's that trail? Like, is it marked? Like, no, it's, it's not marked, but, but trust me, you'll know. Like right away, it gets really steep. And it's, and it's really rocky, so it's actually pretty hard to keep your footing. And then there's going to be all these switchbacks. And the whole way, it's a hard trail, Greg. But, but I'm telling you, like the top is worth it. The view, you just see the whole gorge. It's, it's amazing. So, so if I go and, and I think I find the trail and I get going on it, and right away, it's hard, just like my friend described. And then I get to the part where, where it's so rocky and unstable that it's hard to get my footing. And then I hit the switchbacks. I know I'm on the right trail and I, I know it's going to be worth it, right? It, it, it is expected. Jesus tells us in John 16, 33, and this won't be up on the screen. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I've overcome the world. Peter says to us in 1 Peter four twelve, Beloved, this is wild. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. All right, back to Paul's voyage, verse 16. Running under the lee, which we know what a lee is now, the lee of a small island of Cauda, uh, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that we would run aground on uh, Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. 
Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, which sounds like here in the winter, um, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned, right? It, it is dire for them. And some of you, maybe, maybe most in the room, know exactly what that's like, to, to just be out of hope. And these, these passengers on this ship, many of them, maybe all of them, knew the seas, right? This was not their first time on rough waters, and yet they're all out of hope. Verse 21, since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And this is a, an interesting scene, if you can picture it. There's, there's 276 people on this boat. Why are they listening to Paul, this prisoner? Well, Paul uh, was a Roman citizen, so that could be a part of it. He certainly was used to speaking to crowds, so he knew how to get a crowd's attention and how to, uh, how to keep their attention. Um, he was probably the oldest on the ship, and he was right in his assessment that they should not have left Fairhavens, right? Like, like I'm sure as things started getting worse and worse, people said, hey, that guy over there, and he's the one that said that we never should have taken off, that, that, that we don't even really have a chance that we're going to lose, uh, we're going to lose the ship, we're going to lose our lives. So this, this starts off like, a, like an I told you so speech, right? And those, we all know, those are the worst. Like if you're tempted to give an I told you so speech, just keep it in your head, right? Don't smile when you do it, because if you do, then you might as well have just said the thing. But Paul's not, he's not giving an I told you so speech, though it looks that way at first, right? Really what he's doing is, is, is he is giving himself some credibility. He was right. And therefore it makes sense to listen to what he's about to say. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So then Paul says, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So God gives Paul this promise. Right? He'd already been promised a couple previous times in Acts that he would go to Rome, that he would go and, and speak uh, of Jesus with the Caesar. Um, and, and now with that promise attached to that is that everyone on board the ship with him is going to be saved as well. So not only is Paul or God getting Paul to Caesar, he's going to save everyone uh, on this ship in the process. And what Paul had said before uh, about not leaving Fairhaven, that was that was wisdom. That, that, was, that was from a guy who'd been on the seas many times. This is different, right? What's said in verse 22 is God's promise to Paul. And, and notice why, why Paul trusts this. He says that God made him this promise. And then he says, this is, this is the God to whom I belong, right? This is the God I worship. And, and we might not like hearing um, this idea of belonging to someone, 
right? That might sound uh, too possessive and controlling. It might even remind us of our nation's history with, with slavery. But the biblical picture of belonging is one of security, right? Knowing that there's no one better to belong to. It's one of grace and mercy because of the great uh, love that God has for his children. I found this. Someone wrote this about uh, belonging to God. She said, when I say I belong to God, I mean that I am indelibly etched into God's family tree. I cannot be removed or cast out. God has adopted me into God's family, and it is a gift of God, not the result of some heroic act that merits my inclusion into the royal family. I did nothing to become a part of God's family, and here's the best part. I can do nothing to get kicked out of that family. Belonging is the antidote to fear. I know that God promises that nothing can separate any of us from the love that God lavishes on each person in God's family. And I know that belonging to God gives me an identity that derives from God's love and specifically not from any action I take to prove myself worthy of that love. In short, I have nothing to fear because I belong to God. I don't know if you remember the, uh, the movie Toy Story um, with uh, oh, Tom Hanks. His character is, is Woody. If you haven't seen it, um, it it's all these, these toys that live, uh, live in this, this house with, uh, with Andy, this kid who, who owns them. And uh, Woody is this toy cowboy. And, and throughout, I think, all of the Toy Story films, though it's, it's, there's so many, it's a little hard to remember. Um, but, but throughout at least most of them, Woody's wrestling with just massive insecurities. Like, like the first time you watch it, you don't really realize like kind of what a wreck this guy is. Um, but he's just dealing with these insecurity issues and, and really it, it's identity. Um, and at least in the first film, what he keeps coming back to is, is what's written on his cowboy boot. I don't know if you remember, but, but Andy, the kid's name, is written on his cowboy boot. And it, it, it's because he belongs to Andy. And Woody takes great comfort in belonging to Andy. But if you remember in, in the first movie right away, it's, it's the birthday party. And, and they're looking to see what the new toys are. And uh-oh, there's a Buzz Lightyear. And Buzz Lightyear's this space guy. He, he flies and really believes that he's a space guy. He's super cool, talented. And, and man, it just throws Andy into this tailspin, right? This, this battle, like, is he, is he still, does he still belong to Andy? And obviously, by the end of the movie, Woody realizes that he's still Andy's. Right, that he still belongs. And, and the addition of another toy, no matter how cool it is, doesn't change that. But in the movie, you just keep seeing him, uh, that it's written on the bottom of his boot that, that he belongs to Andy. So, so even if he doesn't feel that great about himself, he, he belongs to Andy. And it, it truly is. It's a matter of identity, right? And, and we look at our world right now and so much of what is twisted, we can go, man, that's an identity issue. But it's not like just the last few years, right? It, it, not even just decades and, and, and centuries. Like it, it, there's always been th this issue of identity because deep down, we all know that identity matters. And, and, and the world may not know it, but what, what they long for is this identity in Christ, right? To, to belong to Christ. Let me read just a few verses connected to belonging. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, For you were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body, right? It was by the death of Jesus, his resurrection, that he made us belong to him. Jesus purchased us with his very life. And, and here's something that's, that's way better than having a name written on the bottom of your boot. Isaiah 49, 16, God says, Behold, I, I've engraven you on the palms of my hands. I love this imagery too. Um, this husband and wife, Song of Solomon, uh, 6, 3, I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine, right? If you've trusted in Christ, you belong to God and nothing, nothing can change that. And and maybe, maybe you hear that and you think, man, yes, I I keep coming to church, right? I'm, I'm doing a Bible study. I'm reading my Bible. I'm, I'm serving, but I haven't really been following God for a long time, right? Or or maybe you're like, man, I've got this, I've got this sin that, that I've been hiding forever, Right? And I, I cannot let this go. No one knows about it, but I can't seem to kick this thing. I don't know if I really belong anymore. Romans 8, 38 and 39, I love this. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, right? Any, anything that we could, we could come up with as a reason that God would stop loving us He says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Praise God for that. Paul trusts the promise that he belongs to God and everything that that means. Back to our passage here, verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that we were nearing land. So they took a sounding. Uh, and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. So, so they're dropping a, a, a rope with something heavy on the end and, and, and they're measuring how far in a fathom's about, about six feet. Verse 29, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape, right, they're, they're panicking uh, from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out the anchors from the bow. Paul spots that. He says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers go and they cut the ropes off the ship's boat and let it go, right? Yes, they, they have this promise. And yes, it's still really, really scary for them, right? Promises are really easy to hold on to once they've been fulfilled, it feels pretty precarious though, until that fulfillment comes. So Paul trusts God's promise. And my guess is that, that they could likely see uh, Paul's confidence in God's promise. But just because he's confident doesn't mean that he's right. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you take some food. For it will, it will give you strength for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea, right? So they'd gone weeks without food. Maybe because it was too scary or, or more likely, it seems that, that the waves have been so bad that even just the thought of food made them sick to their stomachs. But Paul says, eat. You're going to need your strength. God is going to get us through this. Well, which is it, Paul? 
right? Is God going to get us through this or, or do we need to eat so we have strength to get us through this? And it's yes, right? God is the one at work and he calls us to participate, right? As Christ's followers, we're active participants in what he's calling us to. Verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. You're like, what is that? For the soldiers, if if a single prisoner would escape, it would mean their life. So their plan was, they're just going to off them. But verse 43, the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first, and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Right? They, every one of them, all 276 people, they made it. And truly an amazing uh, story. But again, our Bible student hats are on. Why is this story here? Right? Luke gives a whole chapter for, for us to read this. It isn't here to teach us about ship lingo, right? And, and to, to help us with our, uh, with our directions, right? They, the original audience, they understood this stuff, right? It'd be like if, even though I'm not a car guy, if you started talking about like a transmission and alternators and timing belt, like I have a clue, right? I don't have a clue about sailing, but, but those things I know, right? Or, or if you say, yeah, I'm, I'm jumping on 14, I'm gonna head down 205, I'll get on 84 West and then I'll hit five and then go on 99E. Like I, I don't know if that 99E part's right actually, but um, generally like we know if you're from this area, like you, you understand that. So it's not like the original audience really needed a, a lesson in directions or, or in or in sailing terms, right? And it's not that Luke is just showing off that he's historically uh, and geographically accurate, though Luke does do an incredible job of this, which is, I hope as we've read through Acts, that it is a reminder that, uh, man, we can trust our Bibles, right? We, we can trust our Bibles. I, I don't remember if I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. This is a total side note, but... Um, uh, in, uh, in Israel and surrounding areas where they're doing archaeological digs, there, there are five ancient texts that they, uh, that, that they work with to, to guide where they're going to dig. Four of them are in the Bible, right? It's the Gospels, right? So here's this, this branch of science, both Christians and non-Christians, that, that they're saying, hey, the Bible's got this right. So anyway, that's not the point of why Luke put this in here. Verse 44 gives us a clue to the point, right? All were brought safely to land, right? That, that, that's what Luke's telling us this story for. But why does that matter? Well, God promised it, right? Paul and Luke want to let us in on what, what, what God promised Paul. Remember back in, in verse 24, do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you, right? So he says, so, so take heart. Paul encourages everyone on board. God's told me we are going to make this, right? He, he's going to get me before Caesar and everyone that's on this ship with me, you're going to make it as well, right? He, his, he, he has confidence that it will be as God promised him, it, right? It isn't promised to be easy, quite the opposite. It, it's going to be just about as scary 
and as miserable as possible, but God is going to save them. And, and we might read that and go, okay, that's great for Paul that, that he had that promise, but, but how does that help me in, in the storms I am in, right? Does Paul's promise here fix my problems now? Well, no, that promise was to Paul, but it does remind us that we can trust in God's promises, which are littered throughout scripture, right? There, there are promises that we read over and we don't even notice. And we need to remember that this God that we're reading about that's, that's bringing Paul on this journey, that's saving his life and the lives of others, it's the same God that, that we worship today, right? We can be tempted to think that, man, God did really amazing things back then, but not anymore. No, God doesn't change. He's the same God. So the confidence that Paul has in God's promises, we can and should have today. Let, let me just give you a few promises in the book of Acts. These won't be on the screen. These are, these are ones I picked out. There's way more that I could have picked. But these are promises just in the book that we've been going through. Acts 1.11 said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right? There's a promise that Jesus is returning. Acts 2.21 it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? That's a promise that, that everyone who turns to Christ will be saved. Right? So if you don't know Jesus yet, and you're thinking, no, I'm too messed up. I've got I've to get my life in order. You don't know what I've done. No, this says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm sure all of us have family members or, or at least really, really close friends that we just love dearly that have not yet trusted in Jesus. I mean, this is a promise for, for us to bank on, even if they feel so far away from Christ that, man, if they will turn to Christ, they'll be saved. Acts 2.38, Peter said to him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and all and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, right? That, that when we turn to Jesus, we are gifted the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts 17, 31 says, because he has fixed a day on, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's a promise that a day of judgment is coming. And that's a sobering thought, right? But let's think of these other, some of these other promises that we've read, man, if we turn to Jesus, Jesus is the one who took on that judgment for us, right? We could, we go to the Beatitudes, really all of those are, are promises. I'm, I'm not going to break those down. But, but the simple application for us, I think, from this passage is, hey, we need to search out God's promises. Like uh, every Christian, you should have like a handful of just go-to promises that, that you are ready with. So as you're reading your Bibles, and I hope you're doing that, we need God's word, right? It's not just some ancient text. It's living and active. It's the primary way that God reveals himself to us, right? So every day, God speaks to me, right? When I open up his word, I'm not waiting around for some sign. No, I just open his word. I've God's written word to me. So are you listening? And are you looking for his promises? Like, like the ones in Acts, I'm telling you, they're all throughout scripture. I, I wanna share just two with you and then, and then I'll be done. One, um, one I, I, I uh, was introduced to as an eighth grader. It was my final uh, Sunday as an 
eighth grader in our middle school group at our church. We were having like a kind of a graduation ceremony, right? The next Sunday, I would be with the high schoolers, and our youth leaders gave each one of us a verse. And I took that so seriously as this eighth grader. Um, it's Joshua 1, 9. And it says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for, uh, for uh, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Sorry, I memorized it in NASB and now I read ESV. Um, man, that verse got me through a lot in high school and in college and even early as, as a youth pastor, right? And there are plenty of places where you can go to scripture and, and, and read that, that as a believer, God will never leave you or forsake you, that, that he is with you, right? No matter how isolated you feel, even if everyone abandons you, or no matter how misunderstood or misrepresented you are, you're never alone. Right, man, I needed that. I've needed that over and over again to know that, that there's one who knows me better than I know myself, right? And, and, I, and I don't even have to worry about being annoying to him or, or something like that, and, and he'll ditch me. No, no, he is with me. He's, he's always going to be with me wherever I go. Man, here's another one <clears throat> that's, whew, oh, that's carried me. Uh, and it's, it's become even dearer to me, right? It's, it's, a, it's a verse that I just feel like God just dropped it into my lap. And it's, it's become this, man, like, like this soothing ointment to my heart and my mind and my soul. It's Isaiah 41.10. And there's a lot of similarities to, to Joshua 1.9 here. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And, and, and you can see the parallels there with, with Joshua 1.9. But there's something about this verse that, that just, it was so much more precious to me. The more, the more I think about it, the more I meditate on it, and I, and I finally realized it's because of the I am and I will statements that, that he makes here. And I think it's Spurgeon that, that said it's the I wills and the I shalls of scripture that are just his favorite. And, and until, until I read Spurgeon say that, I didn't even understand why, why Isaiah 41.10 meant so much to me. But, but as he's saying, I will do this, I am this, right? right? I, it, it's great, and it's still meaningful for me to read in Joshua 1, 9, Lord, your God is with you wherever you go. But there's something that's so special to me about God saying, I'm with you. I'm your God. I love you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. And I've, I've just been, I've been clinging to that. Right. In recent times, like I get discouraged like everybody else. Right. I'm, I'm sure I'm average, uh, average in my level of discouragement. But, but as a Christian, you know what it's like. Like you, you get discouraged at times. And when I've been discouraged, I just run to Isaiah 41, 10. And it, it does, it feels like this gift that God has just given me. So I hope, I hope that you have verses or passages that, that are everything to you. Right? Because there are going to be times when you'll need them. Life, life is, is, is a voyage of, of sorts. And it won't seem like you need it when the waters are calm. But everyone knows what it's like to go from calm waters to storm and then, and then even to, to shipwreck. And like Luke wrote, when it feels like there, there's just no hope anymore, right? When it's 14 days of not eating, you haven't seen the sun and the stars, you, you don't know which way is up or down. 
And just like in Acts 27, right, you can't make it better. You can't save yourself. You can't save anyone else for that matter, right? Paul couldn't, right? Paul's an amazing guy. He's not the hero of the story. You are not the hero of your story, but Paul knew the hero, right? It was the one to whom he belonged to. It was the one who he worshiped. Man, is Jesus the one you belong to? And if not, what keeps you from trusting in Jesus? If you do belong to him, are you growing and trusting him? And the older I get, it just seems like that's my prayer all the time is, Lord, will you just help me to trust you more? Like, I want to grow in trusting you more and more and more. And do you have some promises uh, from Scripture committed to memory? Man, will I, will I trust in Jesus, the one I belong to who has never let me down? Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given us all these promises, promises that we've read over dozens, maybe hundreds of times and not even realized, man, that's a promise from God to me, to us. Lord, I pray that we'd be a people of your book, Lord, not to just be filled up with knowledge, but so that we would know the one whom we belong to, so that our lives would be completely changed by, by your great love for us. God, I thank you that, that we are not alone, that we're not on our own trying to make it through this life. But Jesus, that you, you came, that you lived the life we could not live, that you died the death that we deserve, that you rose from the dead, that you offer us life in you, Jesus. We praise you for that, God. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.